Hi all, welcome to the Weird Hour podcast. Today I'm talking to Natasha Brown, author of Assembly. Natasha Brown has spent a decade working in financial services after studying maths at Cambridge University. She developed Assembly after receiving a 2019 London Writers Award in the literary fiction category. Come of age in the credit crunch. Be civil in a hostile environment. Go to college, get an education, start a career, do all the right things. Buy an apartment, buy art, buy a sort of happiness. But above all, keep your head down and keep quiet and keep going. The narrator of Assembly is a black British woman. She is preparing to attend a lavish garden party at her boyfriend's family estate set deep in the English countryside. At the same time, she is considering the carefully assembled pieces of herself. As the minutes tick down and the future beckons, she can't escape the question, is it time to take it all apart? Assembly is a story about the stories we live within, those of race and class, safety and freedom, winners and losers. And it is about one woman daring to take control of her own story, even at the cost of her life. With a steely, unfaltering gaze, Natasha Brown dismantles the mythology of whiteness, lining up the debris in a neat row and walking away. That line is so accurate. It's fire. It's fire. (laughs) Um, Hi, Natasha. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, thank you for having me on. Um, I'm immediately drawn to your background working in financial services and studying maths. Have you been writing this entire time or was there a specific moment where it felt important to step into this form? Mm, I started writing uh, in February 2019, actually. I took a writing class um, uh, on the weekends and just kind of started from there, really. And then later in the year, I got serious about working it into an actual novel. Uh, So it was quite organic, really, at the beginning. It's not an exciting story. No, that is exciting. I guess I'm just thinking of the divergent or what people would perceive as divergent fields. Like, and that's actually quite recent. Like what, what pulled you to, um, you know, take a writing class? Well, I was really interested in sort of how language is used. And I'd been down, I guess, that sort of rabbit hole from a nonfiction perspective. So I was reading a lot and trying to get an understanding of some of the questions I had in terms of the neutrality of language. And it just got to a point where it felt like the best way of understanding this was being hands-on and actually writing. So I decided to uh, learn to write. This is a short text, and it mainly leads up to a brief moment, a party with the narrator's boyfriend's wealthy family. I'm wondering how you approach writing tension, how you wanted to structure this buildup in this very short amount of time. Yeah, I think I think it's a great question. I think the the construct of the party, and we know that the narrator, we join her sort of in London in the city, right? She gets a promotion, then we travel with her out to the countryside to attend this party. I think because it's a trope that we see so often in the English novel, um, everything building up to this uh, big party in a grand old house, it kind of puts some pressure and propels the reader forwards a little bit and hopefully gives the narrative and the rest of the story something to hang on to. So it seemed really useful um, from from that perspective, and everything else then just kind of um, folded out of it. Is this something you think you're committed to, this kind of short form, or is it something specific to Assembly? I think I knew for Assembly, particularly for the voice of the narrator, she wasn't someone I felt it would be good to sustain her voice for too long. You don't want to outstay your welcome and kind of Uh, try the reader's patience too much. So I knew that I wanted to keep it short. 
and to try and make every single sentence, every single paragraph, everything that's in there really earn its place in the book and do at least a couple of things. That was really my aim with with everything. So it was really, I think, a question of tying it to what was right for this story, what was right for this character. Why do you think, um, what do you think of this narrator that she possesses something that could overstay her welcome with, with a reader? Well, I think it has an intense feeling and I think it comes down to it's over a very, it's just a couple of days that the novel spans um, and it has the feeling of being one day. It's often sort of read that way. Right. And it's very intense. We're just sort of dropped into her shoes and I really wanted to focus on her subjectivity. So rather than having a novel that looked at her and sort of described what was happening to her, we saw from her perspective and it was really trying to pull the narrator into her shoes and look outwards from there. But of course, that's quite intense to kind of, if you manage it and you manage to pull someone into a different perspective, it's quite where, like tiring, I think. Um, you know, you talk about walking in someone else's shoes, uh, you get blisters <laughs> if you try that. So I, w- I was mindful of if I was getting it right, it shouldn't need to carry on for too long and would maybe even uh, lose effectiveness if it did. Right. There's only so long we can sustain ourselves in another consciousness. Absolutely. The narrator also has a financial background and identifies this as a primarily capitalist, and I'm using air quotes here, choice. Um, I think this is such an astute sentiment for people of color from lower class backgrounds, this desire to have and do better than was provided to them and how that propels them to a so-called better life, only to find yourself reaffirming the very system you want your people to stretch out of. And please, you know, correct me if if I'm misreading that, but... And of course, I don't expect you to have all of the answers, but I, I do wonder if you have thoughts on how to dismantle this circular and limiting cycle. Yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's an interesting question, and I think sometimes the novel is read as quite critical of capitalism. Um, but I wouldn't say for me that was really any intent. I think we're in this strange phase where. Capitalism so far has been very race-based and capitalism, even the definition of race, it sort of became a myth out of, um, you know, capitalism growing and becoming, or at least how we use it, the dominant economic system. But I think people talk often now about late stage capitalism, but I wonder if it isn't late stage race-based capitalism and if the sort of underlying mythology and value system for capitalism isn't shifting a little bit. And I think that's why right now it's a bit of a weird time where across the political spectrum, there's opposition to capitalism, which is a bit unusual. And I think some of it is to do with that shifting underlying value system. And I think it sort of dovetails into the question about um, AI and automation and the future of labour. I think these are all questions that are intersecting. Um, but I do think it offers opportunities for people of colour that didn't exist a little while ago, the sorts of jobs we have today. If you want to be a profitable business, racism doesn't make all that much financial sense. It doesn't mean it's gone. So I don't see it as a wholly negative thing. I see it as as just a thing that's happening. And it's interesting to use as the backdrop for a story set in the real world. How does that interact with the character and and how does she interact with it? Long, long answer. (laughs) No, 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 no. I mean, it was a long question. It's it's a very heavy question. I know in uh, Weird Era listeners know that that's kind of the mood uh, of the the pod. But 
it makes sense to me what you're saying. It's just sort of interesting, I think. And I think the narrator reflects a lot in this book about the system that she finds herself in sort of unwillingly and the inherent contradictions or the seeming contradictions, the potential hypocrisies of that context. And honestly, it's very personable to me. I'm I'm a woman of color. I've definitely thought about these things in terms of the lineage I've come from um, and the things that have been lacked due to capitalism and and, and race-based systems. Um, I want to explore a little bit more what you were saying about uh, late capitalism. Are you saying that it's shifting away from a racialized um, uh, structure? Are you saying it's leaning more into that? Well, I wonder if some of the opposition to capitalism is because it's sort of detaching from race. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's what I wonder. Wait, no, tell me more about that. Why? Why? <laughs> Why? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know that I have any good answers about it. And I think I try not to get drawn into a discussion of capitalism because I think it's so it's so polarizing. Mm-hmm. But I think the framing in the book that's more restricted for her as the character is less capitalism than the narrative expectations that are placed on. You know, you read uh, sort of the description of the book and right at the start it says it's about a black British woman. And I think that sets up certain narrative expectations. And I think for this character, that's much more restrictive, honestly, than the economic system. Um so it's kind of from that perspective. Your narrator is very much, you know, speaking of that, enveloped in blackness. And while many writers have done and continue to do this, your prose specificity really felt like blackness was the water, I guess, that readers swim in with that in mind. You know, exactly what you were just saying. Um, and I wondered if you were thinking about the different identities that might come to your text and how that could affect the ways in which they swam in this water. Yeah, I I think that's such an interesting question. And one thing that was important to me was to avoid racial signifiers. So the only person whose race is specified is the narrator and everyone else it's left open. Uh, But it's very interesting when, particularly in the critical response, you see people are very, very sure about what everyone's identity is. And not only are they sure, you know, in the first couple of sentences of summary, they want to lay out what everybody is. And I, I think that's so interesting. And I think that comes a lot from who you are reading it and and what your expectations are and how you read into, as you say, it's a short novel. So it's very little you're going off of to make a decision about the characters' identities. So I think that was definitely something I wanted to explore. And again, the length allowed me to do that sleight of hand where you kind of think you've known enough, but it's not explicitly said. And I think it's just a bit, for me at least, I felt perhaps refreshing. Um, You know, oftentimes when you have a novel from, um, you know, particularly a racial minority, everybody's race is clearly specified because we're writing, we're writing for the default reader who needs to know. And I felt it was interesting and kind of a fun challenge to see if I could pull away from that slightly. It's, you seem to be describing it as a challenge to yourself, but I feel like I'm hearing it as a challenge to readers you know, sort of... Well, I think it's definitely yeah. an invitation, yeah. Yes, And I yeah. think it's been really lovely to speak to readers and um, discuss that aspect in particular because sometimes it's brought up, which is just great, yeah. Readers follow the narrator as she thinks through 
you know, no light matter of life and death. Uh, at one point, she expresses frustration at the sort of mundane ways her mother brings up so-and-so's death. And in doing so, she, and I'm quoting here, decided my complaint was primarily formal, as though she resented this question only because the mention of death reminded her of a previous life having been lived. I really love this inquiry, but it, it made me wonder, is the discomfort felt socially about death, mostly a formal one? Can you explore that a bit more? Well, so I think with that in particular, I really had in my mind uh, the weathering hypothesis, which is this um, proposed explanation for essentially in the UK, in the US, we see worse health outcomes for black women. um, And it sort of ties it to structural issues um, and explains it as weathering. It's having a weathering effect on uh, these people's health. I really wanted to look at how that how that filters down to real life, because it, it does, it is observable. And I think it was really a question of either how it's formed or how the statement's formed or how the idea is framed. You know, it's, it's framed as an individual problem, um, but it's not it's not ever sort of really engaged with in a meaningful way. And I think she's sort of flippant and and speaking quite lightly when she mentions that. But I think it's this idea of how we talk about what's really quite a horrible situation um, and the way that we frame it and the way that we talk about it has an impact on whether or not any action's taken to address it, which is really not much at the moment. That's incredible. That's that's carrying quite a lot of power with a lot of brevity. Um, I feel in hearing you elaborate uh, on that, and I had never heard of that that phrase before. The weathering ne- network is that the weathering you know? hypothesis. I think so. It was a public uh, re- health researcher, Arlene Geronimus, I think, who sort of came up with this name for it. And um, it's it's not a proven um, theory. It's more drawing some correlation between, um, I guess, the data, so the, the health outcomes and. Um, and I guess the broader situations. So uh, to me, it was quite interesting because it seemed to tie together a lot of things that I recognised and was concerned about. And I just really wanted to explore, or not so much explore, but kind of for this character, it's really the framing of her whole life. And it's how and she thinks about herself sort of within that, that problem. Um, but I, I wanted to dig into it, I guess, a bit. You also point out that, you know, she's being quite flippant and she can be, I feel, throughout the text. Why did you make her that way? I think it's a question of, so how I approached her character was I wrote all of the other characters first. I sort of figured out who they were, what they were doing over this period, how they intersected, what what their story was, what they cared about, what they wanted, what they liked for breakfast, all of that type of character stuff. Right. And then I tried to find the narrator's voice and make her the person who fit into the space that they all left behind because I felt that would help to kind of constrain her narrative and give her this really caged-in feeling. But at the same time, I think, to exist in a space where you are sort of spoken over. We don't know much about her at all. She's sort of defined by absence and the things we know are really things that other people say about her or assume about her. In that sort of a situation where you don't have much of a voice, I think humour is probably one coping mechanism and it seemed right for her. And there's a few lines in there that um, are quite, they make me chuckle anyway. (laughs) You have to amuse yourself in your writing. Um, But I wanted her to have that 
that sense of humor because I think oftentimes people do, um, you know, regardless of situation. That's so interesting that you started this with the other characters um, because, as we've discussed, we're so immersed in this narrator's consciousness. But really, now I'm learning that that consciousness is a construct of other people. And that's sort of, um, I, I want to reread this text now, like, <laughs> <clears throat> from this different perspective. Was that, an, was that always the goal or was that just something that made sense for this story you wanted to tell? I think it was absolutely always the goal for this story and how I wanted this character to develop, particularly because going back to that problem of language and narrative expectations, I wanted to really create the experience of having your identity sort of forced upon you and sort of no freedom, no subtlety, no space to be an individual and be a person, really. I kind of wanted to just totally squeeze her in. Um, of course, this very subject matter is extended from the personal to a specific racial observation, you know, the subject matter about death, as we've pointed out, you know, thinking about the cycle of life in racialized terms, again, as we've addressed, uh, the narrator remarks, it was survival only in the sense that a meme survives, generational persistence without meaning or memory. This is quite a bleak observation, I suppose, not surprisingly from a wounded narrator, but I really sat with the words generational persistence. Persistence invokes an ambitious meaning to me, but here it sort of reads as lackadaisical, like as though we keep living because there's nothing else to do. I'm wondering if that's the correct reading, if if, if, if it is in fact a bleak sentiment for the, the narrator here. Well, I think it's, I think she she's taking a dim view, but I think persist is such an interesting word because I guess it, it had that rousing meaning for a while. Um, with, was it Elizabeth Warren? The never right. the less she persisted. Um, so it, it can mean a lot of things, but it can also, I guess in, in my head, I was thinking about persistence just in the sense that it continues to exist. And I think that's sort of going back to, um, there's this essay I read, Afro-pessimism, that was talking about the construction of a Black racial identity and how important it is as a concept for kind of other people to judge themselves as a distance from so there's this idea that this will something like this needs to exist and she references uh, lbj's quote sort of on a similar thing later in order for in some senses society to function for people to feel comfortable in themselves there needs to be something that you're different from so i think i kind of had all of those in mind but especially with this book towards the beginning i think her perspective is a bit softer and a bit vaguer. And I think she gets into more concrete, specific terms and more explicitly maybe metafictional terms towards the end. But at the beginning, it's kind of a, it's more of a pool allowing um, or kind of representing, I guess, how she feels in a space where she's more comfortable to and more familiar. I'm just going to be thinking about generational persistence for a really long time. (laughs) I feel like there's so much to unpack there. Um, and especially, you know, in, in, in connection with obvious things like colonialism, there's this idea that a thing sort of happened. There's no real rhyme or reason, colonialism being the thing, something that wasn't meant to happen. There is no, you know, like destiny, predetermined reasoning for this. Um, and one generation has benefited, of people has benefited over another. Um, but the concept of a generational persistence to me is sort of just that we keep moving despite the sort of irrational precondition. 
And I just, I think listeners should think about that a lot because I absolutely will. Um, Your narrator confronts her own mortality in this book and remarks more than once that doing nothing is a choice. I think about this when it comes to the subject matter of death all the time, but like these external characters in the book, the external people in my life feel it's quite a depressing and worrisome mindset. Um, I'm wondering if there are ways in which this choice of nothing is, you know, something beautiful that the narrator is in fact taking up. Um, maybe a choice of nothing has value in its own way. Can, can you tell me a little bit more about that? I think absolutely. And I think one of the core, the core dilemmas that she faces is this idea of no matter what she does, it's kind of co-opted into a narrative and tied back to her identity. So there's a version of this book where, you know, she has an uplifting battle against her illness and comes out triumphant at the end and some lessons are learned. There's some sad moments, but we end on a high note. Um, There's a version of the book where, you know, she tries the same thing and it ends very sadly, but, you know, it was a bit of a tragedy and we, we feel sorry for her. But I think there's something in resisting the the expectation and the impulse to tie it into a satisfying narrative that fits into, I guess, storytelling conventions. And I don't do that just to be frustrating. I think mm-hmm. sort of going back to weathering and particularly, um, so uh, <laughs> slight spoiler. So she has cancer. Um, and in the UK for women under 40, black women have a higher mortality rate that isn't explained by socioeconomic background, isn't explained by other health conditions. I think, this expectation that we turn it into a single individual narrative rather than sit in the uncertainty and the unpleasantness of these kinds of statistics was something I wanted to resist. And so it meant that I had to try and find other ways to make the ending and the narrative arc satisfying. But I felt that by refusing to make a choice and go in a direction by just doing nothing, we sort of sit with the uncomfortable question of why are we okay with Um, you know, the broader circumstances. Right. And that's realism, arguably, right? That's, that's real life. That's what happens. Um, It doesn't always end. Our our lives, our our days don't always end with like this neat little bow that fiction so historically asks of us. Were you thinking about realism? Realism? Um, I I think to a degree, yes. Um, I wanted... Maybe not so much realism, but like verisimilitude, if I'm saying that correctly, but yeah. that sense of believability and that this woman exists and her experience exists. And I think a part of that was just because we don't see a whole heap of women like her in fiction. Whereas in my life, I know a ton of women like this woman. Right, exactly. I go as far as calling her commonplace. Yeah. So I felt it was important to lend it that feeling of believability, particularly because all of the kind of gatekeepers a manuscript has to get to before it turns into a novel and is in the hands of folks who might know women like the narrator, they're not most likely going to know women like her because it's a totally different (laughs) industry sphere um, world. So I kind of had to do my best to sort of shortcut to that believability and answer that uh, believability question. On page 13, the narrator muses on her friend Rachel's aspirations, who, and I'm quoting here, says she wants a bigger house, a better boyfriend, more money. She wants all these things without shame or subtlety, and I'm both fearful and admiring of her appetite. 
What is there to fear and what is there to admire in this appetite? I think there's always something about very um, ambitious people, particularly people who, and maybe this is more from a British perspective, but say it very plainly. It's not common, I think, in Britain to just state what you want and how you plan on getting it. Um, really, ambition is is very not British. Well, I think perhaps not ambition, but being upfront in, in quite the same way. I guess, you know, you see fewer motivational speakers. Um, you more imagine <laughs> an American one versus a British one. And I think there's more... Um, you know, more of an expectation that you talk around something rather than hit it head on. So I think there's that slight cultural element to it, um, that it, that it's maybe a bit unsettling. But I think there's also, you know, it mentions earlier that she's a lean-in feminist. I think there's a real appeal um, in particularly women who do want to lean in and do want to kind of be ambitious and be a bit more aggressive in the workplace. So I, I felt with, with Rach, it was just kind of this fun... When you see one of those larger-than-life characters <laughs> in life, it, it's a bit interesting, I, I, I felt. Um, on page 44, the narrator muses on the word love, quoting again, perhaps that's all it is, the saying of it and then the acting it out. I think we could read this as tongue-in-cheek, but I'm also thinking, is she wrong? I don't think she's wrong. What's a verb if not an action expressed, Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's one of um, the lines I really like. I think it really captures her. And this sort of, um, I think she says about Rach, um, this post-postmodern sincerity, <laughs> right. this idea of she's being flippant, but she also kind of means it. Right. Um, I think that's also a, a sentence that listeners should should really take with them. Um, and you'll, the book is filled with other phrases like that, but um, it's something that I also will be returning to. Um, on page 78, there's a footnote that reads, and it's broken down, um, it is remarkable even in the ostensible pri- privacy of my own thoughts, I feel still compelled to restrict what I say. Is this speaking to the Black experience again, the ways in which whiteness and its inherent policing comes to imprison Black consciousness even? I think that's maybe even a a broader meaning than I had in mind because I see that footnote is so important because it's sort of this pivotal moment where the narrative shifts and all of a sudden it's moving into a, you know, she's in this garden to attend the party and she exits the garden. So we're going in a direction that we weren't really expecting from how things had built up before. And the form sort of, I think, changes slightly. And for me, that's when she steps into the role of active narrator and she starts deciding what she's narrating, how she's doing it. It gets a bit more experimental in places. So I really wanted her to kind of quite explicitly at that point address, I guess, the expectations of the novel and and how we might expect it to go at that moment, but to kind of signal that she's going to go in a slightly different direction. Why is she saying that or why is she reflecting on the fact that she feels she still feels restricted by what she can say, even in her own consciousness? And I think, and this is possibly a, a sort of dreary answer, but I think a first-person novel, if it's working, we get the sense we're in someone's consciousness. Mm-hmm. And so what they're doing should be what they're thinking. We, we should be really close to them. But at the same time, 
it's a product that's going to go through a lot of um, different gatekeepers. It's got to be, you know, it's got to be saleable. It's got to get purchased. All mm. of this, it's got to be expected to land properly. So not anything crazy can happen. There's thoughts people might have that couldn't go into a book mm -hmm. um, that you'd expect to get published uh, traditionally. So it was really about sort of a wink at that there are narrative constraints and there's limits on what the book is able to do just by virtue of being a book, particularly from a debut author. And it's almost a little bit of awareness from her. And at other points, she sort of nods towards knowing that she's in a book. You know, I think the first thing she actually says is it's a story. She kind of knows that she's inside this construct and it's kind of winking towards that and um, sort of highlighting the direction she's going to attempt to take the story in. I feel like you pointed out in this conversation um, that the book is sort of intentionally trying to challenge preconceived uh, expectations uh, of this narrator, of a book itself. But I feel like I just... I just got caught in in, in <laughs> bringing, bringing my preconceptions to this text. You know, the fact that you've just broken down how this is really speaking, this, this very footnote is really speaking to the, the formality, the structure, the, the actual text that we're with. And I immediately um, co covered it in, in, I made it racial um, when that wasn't necessarily the point. That's so interesting, right? I feel like I just caught caught in my own head. <laughs> well, I, I, de I definitely wouldn't say caught at all. I, I think it's, you know, a bit part of how, how black novels are framed at the moment. And I think it, it's, it's great in a sense because it's the reason why I, I get the opportunity to publish this. But I think we set up a lot of expectations and it, it kind of made it a bit of a fun challenge to play around with those. But at the same time, and this was something I was always sort of clear on at writing, it has to work on the story level. There has to be sort of an in-world, I suppose, reading of it that makes sense too. Um, it's one of those things that felt like a very difficult line to tread. You don't want to be too obvious with things. You don't want to be too obscure. And you certainly don't want to be too frustrating because if someone's kind of giving your atten their attention to read, you want to reward it. So it was trying to um, juggle all of those things. Right. But you also still have to be honest to the experience. To, you're, you're, you're making a point. Very much so. It, I did, you know, start off by reading the book copy, which immediately addresses a black British woman. So this book is going to be about a black British woman, right? That there's a <laughs> there's something to honor about that, right? Despite what we're what we're exploring right now, is that fair to say? I mean, abs absolutely. Um, I, I think it's just such an interesting thing, right? Because we never really see a book about you know, a white British woman, that would never be written on, hmm. on the copy of a book. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's so, because, I mean, it wouldn't tell you much about what to expect, mm -hmm. but I think black British woman novel, there are narrative expectations attached to that identity. And I think that was something I was so interested in, in being able to explore. And I think I, I certainly wouldn't call the novel a satire, but I think I did borrow elements of satire in the sense of there's this established genre and I'm kind of poking at its constructs a little bit um, in order to kind of interrogate that question of why do we need that sentence on the blurb? What's mm -hmm. it doing? Mm -hmm. um, are you a poet? <laughs> mm -hmm. I am a uh I, I enjoy poetry, um, but I'm not a sophisticated reader. I'll put it that way. Have, have you have you tried your hand at it? There's there's a certain lyricism um, 
to this prose um, that to me just invoked that question, made me wonder if perhaps that's a, a, a writing world that you may have or will want to explore. I, I think I'm definitely, I think I was certainly influenced by poetry because I do enjoy reading poetry. And um, in particular, I think one of the big clear influences is Claudia Rankin and Citizen Don't Let Me Be Lonely. Mm-hmm. That form really influenced how I thought about approaching this. Mm-hmm. I I think um, in terms of writing poetry, I sort of feel it was sort of like with writing a novel. (laughs) I started with classes. So I think I could definitely see me doing some poetry classes at some point. Thank you, Natasha. This is great. Um, Listeners, go pick up a copy of Assembly on the Weird Era Shelf. And um, it's a slim one. Reread it after you listen to this episode. (laughs) There's so much to reread. Now, uh, Now I know that. Thank you again. This is great. Thank you so much for having me on. 